We're going to read this morning from Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, Andy is handing them out, so just raise your hand. It's Isaiah 6, and that should be on page 691, if you have other church Bibles. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, go, tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you to Sunday. Thank you to the musicians. Thank you to the bringers of coffee and the makers of bringers of food. Thank you to those who set up. So much of what we do here on a Sunday morning is dependent on the service of uh, men and women who care for us. Thank you, so many involved. 1968, I had no idea that that was the beginning of what is now release. Pauline and I went to America for the first time in the summer of 1968. I finished my college, um, college course in 1968 and I went to look after three Methodist churches in northern part of New York State. And during that time we went to the reflecting pool, the place where Martin Luther King had delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech and we visited the freshly dug grave of... Robert Kennedy. It was a very interesting time. However, I don't want to talk about that. 
I'm, I'm just filling in because my sermon only lasts about 10 minutes. <laughs> Dream on. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the distressing things um, I discovered about my fe- myself from time to time is the quality of the motives that slosh about in the bilge that is the ship of my character. Occasionally, I lift the hatch, or the hatch is lifted, and I get a a smell, a vile sense of the smell of the stuff that goes on deep down in my heart. One of the most nauseating smells that comes up from there is, um, why do I do what I do? In the Lord's service, I was a pastor uh, in the Church of Christ. I was an under-shepherd, a teacher of righteousness. I was a preacher of holiness. I was a herald of the best news that anybody could ever declare. Yet I found myself, in the midst of all that, looking for the approval of men and women, aching for the applause of human beings. I found that so often my motive for doing what I did was motivated by a desire for approval or applause. And it was a horrible, horrible thing to get a whiff of that emerging from my heart. I wanted my churches to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I wanted my my members to be in love with Jesus. I wanted them to come to hear preaching because they love the word of God. I wanted them to come to church meetings with a joyful spirit. I wanted them to go out into the world with a passion to serve and to care and to love and to be an example for Jesus Christ. I wanted my church to be a wonderful church. But why did I want the church to be a wonderful church? Well, sometimes it was because I wanted to be the pastor of a really good church that was well known throughout the United Kingdom, if not across the world. That didn't work out too well. Why do we do what we do? Why did I do so often what I did? So I want to explore that question with you today by looking at the experience of this pastor, this preacher, Isaiah. He lived, as Stevens mentioned, he lived in days of terrible moral and spiritual decline in the nation of Israel and in the church, the Old Testament church. And he was predicting that the most terrible political upheaval was on the horizon. A great pagan king had come to power in the north and he was about to come like a steamroller down from the north and he was going to conquer the territories of of, of the northern kingdom and of of, uh, Judea and Jerusalem. Eventually he was going to leave Jerusalem as a smashed and burning ruin. And it was Isaiah's a terrible responsibility to warn the people of Jerusalem that this northern power was about to come down. So after a period of prosperity under a godly king, Israel was now about to experience the most terrible, terrible suffering because of their sinfulness and because the God of Israel had now abandoned them because of their idolatry. Everything looked bleak, and in that very situation, God called this young man to be a preacher. And the question I want to ask him today is, why did you do what you did? Why did you do what you did? And as I begin, I want to offer one word of caution, and that is that as long as you live and as long as I live, we're going to have mixed motives. 
that, uh, that bilge down in the bottom of your personality is going to have some nasty stuff sloshing about in it until you get a new body from the Lord Jesus at the day of his return. But we're going to, we're going to have that smelly stuff down there, but we can, we can grow to be better men and better women, even in our motives. So we're going to visit the heart and mind of Isaiah, the son of Amos, this man who was a preacher for more than 40 years. Why did you do what you did? Isaiah, why did you do what you did? Well, first of all, because I've seen the majesty of the sovereign Lord. Am I? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I've got something behind me. I've seen the majesty of the sovereign Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's the first thing. Our service for the Lord should always flow from our experience of the Lord. Isaiah didn't go to an employment agency for preachers. He wasn't headhunted by the Guild of Prophets. He saw the Lord high and lifted up and he became a preacher. I don't know whether he was literally in the temple in uh, Isaiah chapter 6 or whether it was a prophetic vision like the one given to Ezekiel in the Old Testament and John in the New Testament, but whatever it was, it was a God-given experience of the majesty of a God who is utterly pure and magnificently glorious. Uh, He was enthroned, it says here. The Old Testament scriptures describe the God of Israel as the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. There was in the heart of the tabernacle and then in the heart of the the temple a cubic room. It was the same height as the same width as the same length. It was a cubic room and it was called the Holy of Holies and it contained the chest made of acacia wood in which the Ten Commandments were placed. The Ten Commandments were a, a document that described to Israel the covenant love of God and what he expected of them if they loved him. On top of the chest was a, something called a mercy seat. It was solid gold and out of it were molded two angelic looking figures with wings, the cherubim. And there it says that God is enthroned above the mercy seat between the cherubim. That's the description that you find in the Old Testament. He was enthroned between the cherubim. That's the one that Isaiah experiences here in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah is never going to be the same man again. It's not a casual experience that you talk about to your grandchildren, something long half forgotten. It's it's not uh, something casual. It's an experience that's going to transform the man's understanding and his behavior for the rest of his life. It's life transforming. I saw the Lord. He appeared to me as a mighty king. He took my breath away. He was high and lifted up. The royal cloak he was wearing filled the temple, the whole temple. There wasn't anything else to look at or to see but the glory of God, because the glory of God filled everything that there was to be seen in the temple. It filled everything in every way. He was sitting on a throne and his majesty filled everything. 
It also says he was exalted. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, extolled. There were a group of seraphim above him. Uh, It's common to regard these as pictures of angels. You see that it says there, above him were seraphs, each with six wings. What is this? Are they angels in the vision? The Hebrew literally means fiery ones, fiery creatures. Strangely enough, it's the same word that's used of those fiery snakes that bit the Israelites in the wilderness. I'm going to suggest something that I came, I came to believe some years ago, that these creatures who are able to fly don't wish to bring glory to themselves. They bring glory to this king. They use their voice to declare his holiness, his majesty, his honor. Verse 3, they tell Isaiah who he is. He's the Lord of hosts, what he's like, thrice holy. When the king wishes to grant forgiveness to this stricken preacher, it's the seraphim that take the living coal from off the altar and bring it to cleanse away the sin of Isaiah. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a picture of the Holy Spirit and his work. In Zechariah 4 and in Revelation chapter 4, the Holy Spirit is pictured as seven tongues of fire. Did I say tongues like a Lancashire man? can never say tongues or whatever you say in the south. Seven tongues of fire. Now, nobody else, as far as I can tell in the history of Christianity, has has suggested that this is the right interpretation of Isaiah 6, so I I share it with you tentatively. (laughs) But here is, above this king enthroned, is these fiery ones. And they, their business, the business of these fiery ones is to declare the majesty and the glory of God, and then to apply the mercies of God to a forgiven sinner. And it seems to me that that is an appropriate description of the work of the Holy Spirit. But the point is this, after these seraphim have done their work, Isaiah is deeply impressed with the holiness, the glory, and the mercy of the living God. And when these creatures speak of the glory of the, king's, uh, of the king, the temple shaken to its foundations and, uh, and uh, the temple's filled with the glory cloud of God's holy presence. And then Isaiah begins to preach. And you know, that reminds me of a passage in the New Testament when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They preached because they'd experienced God. The majesty of King Jesus filled their minds and hearts, and they went out to preach. Why did Isaiah do what he did? Because he experienced the king's majesty and was touched by his holiness and heard words about his greatness, felt the earth-shaking power of his presence. And who is this king? Stephen alluded to it. This king that Isaiah saw is Jesus. Um, If you turn with me, please, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 41. John is teaching us here. Verse 37, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill 
the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's from Isaiah chapter 53. For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he's blinded their eyes, deadened their hearts. They can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn that I would heal them. That's Isaiah chapter 6, this very chapter that we're looking at. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 6 is that Isaiah was granted a vision of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is glorious and is the true King. Some years ago, one of my young friends tried to educate me about um, the stories of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Actually, this very week, I've downloaded them onto my tablet to read them again. I've never read. I read The Silver Chair to my children when they were young. I've never read them from beginning to end. So I've downloaded them onto my tablet together with the three um, books in the, um, the science fiction trilogy. But one of my young friends tried to educate me in the stories of Narnia. Jesus is depicted as a huge lion called Aslan. You all, you, you will all be familiar with this quote. And now, said Aslan, to business. I feel I am going to roar. You'd better put your finger in your ears. And they did. And Aslan stood up, and when he opened his mouth to roar, his face became so terrible that they did not dare look at it. And they saw all the trees in front of him bend before the blast of his roaring as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. Grass, not grass. Grass, as grass bends before the wind. That's a great picture. The majesty, the terrifying majesty of God. One of my favorite men in history <clears throat> although you have to concede that a lot of these guys had unique experiences, but one of my favourite men is George Whitfield, who did such an amazing ministry in the United Kingdom and then went to the eastern seaboard of the United of the States. I want to listen to the experience of George Whitfield when he was 22 years of age. Early in the morning, at noonday, evening and midnight, nay, all the day long did the blessed Jesus Visit and refresh my heart. Sometimes as I was walking, my soul would make such sallies as though it would go out of the body. At other times, I would be so overpowered with the sense of God's infinite majesty that I would be constrained to throw myself on the ground and offer my soul as a blank in his hands to write on it what he pleased. 22 years of age. Now, we may not know the intensity of these experiences. We may not know the duration and the passion of them, but shouldn't we know something of them? One of the, the burdens I've experienced over the years in Christian leadership is disappointment. I'm often disappointed with myself. I've often been disappointed with the performance of Christians who seem to have so little heart for the prayer meetings who don't have a heart to serve sacrificially 
in the life of the church. Christians who are happy all the time to be taking, 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 but never seem to be inclined to give, to give and to serve. I long for a generation of Christians who will love the Lord, love his church, love his world and serve with passionate devotion. I long for that, but here's the thing, there's absolutely no use my hoping that they will do it for me. They will only do it, out of, not out of a voluntary spirit, but because they've caught a glimpse of the king in his majesty, so that they do it for him, that his glory, his personality, his beauty, his purity has impinged on their awareness of who they are and what God is. Because they've seen the king high and lifted up and his glory making an impact on their lifestyle. Isaiah, why did you do what you did? Because I saw the sovereign Lord. Listen to A.W. Tozer, famous American evangelical. Come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him, they prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. I've seen the majesty of the sovereign Lord. Have you got any awareness of what that means? Isaiah, why did you do what you did? Because I've seen the majesty of the sovereign Lord. Secondly, I've experienced the pain of personal brokenness. I've experienced the pain of personal brokenness. The shattering thing for Isaiah as it's developed for us in these chapters is that in chapter 5, he's inspired by the Spirit of God to pronounce seven woes on the behaviour of people who live in his culture. Just go home sometime, sometime maybe today or tomorrow Look at chapter 5 of Isaiah and pick out the woes. He has to condemn their consumerism. Woe to those who add house to house and field to field. Verse 8 of chapter 5. He has to condemn their sensualism. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Verse 11. And there are other things that there he has to preach against. But in chapter 6 he has one more woe left and it's to to be applied to himself. Woe is me. Verse chapter 5, woe is them, woe is them, woe is them. Preacher has to preach about the sins of his people. And then in chapter 6, as he stands before the holy purity of the living God, he has to pronounce a woe on himself. Woe is me. And it's the most painful realisation a preacher can make. My lips are unclean. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He made his, that was his profession, that was his life, that was his calling to, to use his lips for the glory of God. And here he is saying, my lips are unclean. 
The claimer of righteousness, I'm unclean myself. There's a brokenness about this. Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what King David felt when he allowed pride and lust and the casual use of power to lead him into adultery and into lying and into cover-up and then into murder. The very thing that he should have used for the glory of God and for the blessing of God's people, he used to indulge selfish lusts. And he rendered him unclean. He took the very thing that he should have used in a godly manner and he used it in an ungodly way. When the word of God came to him to pronounce its woe on David's life, he became a man of personal brokenness. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. I first encountered this when I was 17. I went as a proud man with uh, unclean lips to a boys' brigade weekend in Cape and Ray Hall in Lancashire. I felt good about myself. I uh, was 17. I was just beginning to take an interest in things that really matter, drink and women. And uh, I football, a passion to become a professional footballer. And there that weekend, as a Church of England minister explained the Bible, I realised I was an unclean young man. And I experienced brokenness over myself for the first time in my life. You know, it's very hard to go into an intensive care unit to comfort a friend when you don't know what it is to go through that experience. I went to visit a friend uh, in the um, intensive care unit in Kingston. He'd almost died unnoticed in his hospital bed. He had terrible asthma. He'd been rushed into intensive care. When I went to see him, he was on a machine that was breathing for him. And uh, he could hardly speak. And I tried to comfort him, but I didn't know how to comfort him because I didn't know what it was like. Next time, now I've had my own experiences of, of brokenness and ill health and what it is to be looked after in a, in a cardiac unit. So after that, whenever I visited someone, I had a measure of sympathy and understanding. And it's got to be like that for authentic Christian ministry, whether it's to a friend in the church, whether you stand before thousands to declare the gospel you're not a wholly intact, I've got it all together person. You can only minister if you've been broken. If before the Lord you felt ruined, woe is me, for I am ruined. You feel like the best thing you could do in the Lord's presence is keep your mouth shut. You're not standing on a pedestal looking down upon all the unclean people around you in the world. No, you've stood in the depths. You know what it is to be a condemned sinner. To stand before the Lord guilty of pride and arrogance and selfishness and all the broken commandments that lie behind you. You know what it's like to have been there and to have stood condemned by the holiness of God. And then to get up and to, to know that you're not a person looking down upon sinners. You are a person down at that level looking up 
to the grace of God. There are Pharisees in the life of the church who have to tut-tut on their lips, ready to come out when someone, some unclean member of the public comes across their path. We live in a culture of irreligious Pharisees. This is one of the strangest things I find about the culture I live in at the moment. The, it seems like we, the, the, the world is full of irreligious Pharisees who use social media to easily and quickly condemn the behaviour of other people. Twitter users, Facebook users, sitting on high and mighty judgment on Donald Trump, on Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, and sundry other easy targets, writing their tweets and their Facebook posts, in a condemning and critical spirit, criticising motives and behaviour. Sitting on a pedestal, looking down upon the other mealy-mouthed, meagre sinners around them. It's the opposite of brokenness. There are pastors who are unapproachable and distant because the only place they feel safe is on a pedestal, out of the reach of the ordinary wrestlings of church members. So are you sitting here this morning in your intactness? Have you got it all together? Are you sitting here in denial of your own actual vulnerability and weakness? Has the king shown you what your heart is really like and then broken it? Do you know what personal brokenness is? It's the best sacrifice you can offer to the king. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's Isaiah. He caught a glimpse of the majesty, the holy majesty of King Jesus, and it broke him because he saw how unclean he was. In 1739, my favourite man, George Whitfield, who's now by now 24, was on his way to America. It took a long time back then on one of those wooden sailing ships. <laughs> and he'd already experienced the first beginnings of the evangelical revival, the 18th century evangelical revival he preached in London and Bristol and other places he preached in the open air he preached on Kennington Common he had seen thousands upon thousands of football crowd size of people coming to hear him preach not everybody was pleased with his preaching he had cats and dead dogs thrown at him on Kennington Common never had that but thousands had flocked to hear his preaching thousands had been converted to Christ through his ministry, he's only 22, 23 years of age. He's one of the most famous preachers in England. Thousands, he only needs to speak his name and thousands gathered. Now he's on, he's on his way to America as a missionary. It was a long voyage to the new world and it was time for God to do a new work in Whitfield's heart. Whitfield prayed, oh, that God may give me to know myself. He was led first to a new vision of the unapproachable heights of divine holiness. And then in contrast, I'm, re I'm reading now from his biography. He was led first to a new vision of the unapproachable heights of the divine holiness. And then in contrast, to a new sight of human sin. 
Sin in something of that blackness in which God sees it. Sin as it exists in fallen human nature, broken and burdened. He found relief in pouring forth his sorrows in his letters to certain close friends. God, he said, has been pleased to let me see something of my own vileness. It's strange that on a ship, the, the um, hatch to his own smelly bilges <laughs> should be lifted. And it seems that the thing that was breaking his heart more than most things was his tendency to pride. Well, I would be the same. 22 and 30,000 people coming to listen to me on a Sunday in Kennington Common in the open air. God has given me a silver voice, a silver tongue that I can speak in such a way that people hear me and are broken and, and come to faith in Christ. I'd feel the same. Why do you do what you do in the way you do? Because I've experienced personal brokenness. So do you have any idea what I'm talking about? You've become aware of what you actually you look like in the sight of God. And then I finish with this. It's briefer. Don't panic, Mr. Mannering. Number three, I felt the power of undeserved forgiveness. I felt the power of undeserved forgiveness. And one of the seraphim, which I think is a picture of the Holy Spirit, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. You know, once a year in, the, in Israel on the Day of Atonement, when, when atonement was made for the sins of the whole people, uh, burning coals were taken from the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard. Burning coals were taken from that altar and they were taken into the Holy of Holies and their incense was mixed with them, and a cloud of uh, beautiful smoke filled the Holy of Holies and, and the holy place. And it covered the mercy seat. It was part of the picture of God's forgiving work on the Day of Atonement. Isaiah had just seen his uncleanness. He'd seen it in the context of the holy beauty of the Lord Jesus. He felt that he was amongst the worst of men. He felt ruined. He felt there was nothing he could say in his own defense. There was nothing he could do to get rid of his uncleanness. He simply confessed his guilt to Christ and fire from the altar came and took his sin away. And it's the energy and the glory of that experience that Isaiah volunteered to become a preacher. Whom shall I send and who will go for us, says the king. Here am I, send me. What kind of voice he said it in? I would have said it in like a little squeak. Heal my send me. <laughs> did he say it boldly and powerfully, or did he say it as a weak, broken man? Hear my send me. Send me, the man who's freshly humbled by a sight of the glory of God. Send me, a man who's coming afresh from an experience of deep personal <coughs> brokenness. Send me. A man who's freshly forgiven by the great mercies of God. And for 40 years or more, this man became a preacher in a, 
in a nation where nobody wanted to listen to him. In chapter 53, when he, he speaks the most beautiful picture of the death of Christ, he begins with, who has believed our report? I've been doing all this preaching. Nobody listens. He preached hope, but hardly anyone would listen. God said to him, go and preach and rend. You make the hearts of these people insensitive. But what did he do? What did he, why did he persist? Because he'd experienced God. So, have you experienced God? Have you experienced him especially as the God of the cross? The glory, this glorious king who sat on the throne in his, Isaiah's experience went to the cross. Did it cross your mind when we read, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, lifted up? In the gospel, the Lord Jesus was lifted up. He was lifted up to a cross. And the cross became the glorious altar on which he sacrificed himself to bring forgiveness into the world. The fire of the judgment of God fell upon the Lord Jesus and the sweet odour of this acceptable sacrifice covered over those sins which made you and I unclean in the sight of God. When you hear the gospel, when you trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes the cross and applies it to your life and makes you clean in the sight of God. And if that doesn't motivate you to serve the Lord with devotion, nothing will. If that doesn't motivate you to do what you do for God's glory, nothing will. If that doesn't motivate you to give your life to serving God in his world and in his church, nothing will. Nothing will. Why do you do what you do? Have you known something of the majesty of the sovereign Lord? Have you experienced something of personal brokenness because God has shown you what you really like? Have you known something of the power of undeserved forgiveness? If you have, you'll be willing to say, here am I, Lord. Let me do it. Send me.